I'm Josh Hamilton. And I'm Joe Skinner. And this is the American Masters Podcast, where we have conversations with the people who change us. Today, we talk to author R.O. Kwan. No external praise and no external sort of achievement has ever begun to match, let alone exceed, the joy I have found when I'm writing and when I'm deep in a sentence and when I'm just really, really trying to get at what it is I want to write down. And most miraculously, when I get there, R.O. Kwan worked over the last 10 years writing her debut novel, The Incendiaries, a book that explodes off the page with spare prose written from the point of view of several unreliable narrators. In this story about a young woman drawn into a violent cult at an American university, Kwan has deftly fictionalized her own history. The novel is largely a result of grappling with her own fallout from Christianity when she was 17. It's rare to see a book that deals with these issues so head-on and without judgment, And for that reason, it's been praised by religious and non-religious readers alike. She's definitely writing what she knows with the incendiaries. And I think confronting her own history in her writing has led to more compassionate storytelling. The book is a national bestseller and was named Best Book of the Year by over 40 publications. She's also had her writing in the New York Times, the Paris Review, and elsewhere. And she's a fellow at the National Endowment for the Arts, among other accolades. The conversation gets kind of heavy at times, but something I should reiterate is that the book is also just a pleasure to read. It's a thriller about love and grief, and it really keeps you on the edge of your seat. Joe recently sat down with R.O. Kwan while she was touring the paperback edition of The Incendiaries in Washington, D.C. So The Incendiaries is now in paperback, and you've been able to share it and talk about it for a while now. What have you discovered about your book or about yourself as an artist through this process of touring with it and talking about it at festivals and universities and in interviews like this? Mm. The genesis of this book came from the fact that I grew up very Christian and thought I was going to be a pastor until I was 17, and then I left the faith. And it was and is the pivotal loss of my life. And it sort of divided my life into a before and after. Um, and I feel very much as though I'm living in the aftermath of that of that loss. Um, and I think in writing this book, you know, in writing this book, I was reading and rereading the Bible. I was reading religious thinkers. Um, and I spent almost as much time with God or with the idea of God as I would have if I'd become a pastor after all. Um, and I was listening to religious music, like, um, like church music from the 1800s, 1700s. And I think in a lot of ways, um, writing this book, it it might've been a last way of being with this God whom I think I still, I don't think I ever stopped loving. Um, it's just that I don't believe that this God is real. As you were bringing it around, uh, did you ever have somebody say something that kind of changed your own opinion of your work? Hmm. That's a really interesting question. On the one hand, um, external validation and or criticism can feel really good and or hurtful, of course. Um, That said, there is something about, for me, and I think for a lot of writers that I know, um... I needed to satisfy myself and I needed to get the book to a place where I could live with being done with it. Um, And once the book was finished to a point where I no longer wanted to change it or play with it, I, I knew I'd gotten it to where I wanted 
it, it to be. Um, and I don't think there's much of anything that anyone could have said that would have changed how I personally felt about it. Um, and I mean that on the language level, on the sentence level, on the level of, I really wanted to get the book to a place where I could open the book at random and read a sentence and not want to just like rip that apart and then the whole book all over again. <laughs> I, 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 I love sentences so much. I love language so much. Um, and I think I essentially, I, I felt very much as though if one sentence was off, then the paragraph was off. If the paragraph was off, then the whole book was off. Um, and I just wanted to get it to a place where it felt final, um, where it felt as though it had, it had achieved I love something Sontag says about, she talks about the prose of poets having lexical inevitability. Um, so when, when, when you read something and it can sometimes feel as though it couldn't possibly have been any other way. And that's what I wanted from this book. Um, and that's what I was working toward. And that's probably partly why it took 10 years. Yeah, I was about to say, <laughs> I, you know, I've read that it took you 10 years to write. Uh, how long did it take to have a first draft? Was most of that 10-year process about revising and trying to achieve that perfect sentence that you talk about? Uh, much of it was about revising, but I spent the first two years just reworking the first 20 pages over and over again um, because I was so hung up on the language and I thought I just really needed like a perfect first 20 pages or as perfect as I can get it since language is flawed and, 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 and no book is perfect. Um, that said... After that, I threw all of that away and I started over. Um, and then I tried to write the next several drafts as fast as I could. Um, and I used various techniques to just try to get over my obsession with sentences, to get over my obsession with language, um, at least for those drafts. It wasn't that I, it wasn't that it was any less important to me. It was just that I, I needed to get through more drafts to get to know the characters better, to, to understand better, like what they want from one another, um, what they want from me, what they want from the book. Do you feel like you've evolved as a writer over that 10-year period of time? I mean, I feel like when I was, you know, working on a creative project 10 years ago and I look back on that project now, it's not necessarily something I'd be super proud of or feel even represents my identity in a major way. Yeah. Um, that was, you know, that was an abiding question for me and, ab and an abiding concern was, especially as like the years stretched along like it was like year five it was year seven it was year eight um I was just like oh my god how am I going to like I began this book a while ago but I will say that in some ways um I still feel very close to like my 18 year old self and a lot of the selves that come after that um I don't feel nearly as close to my 16 year old self and I think a lot of that has to do with just how gigantic and how devastating of a break it was for me to leave the faith to stop being Christian, which happened when I was 17. Um, and I think because of that, it's, it's, it's changed my notions of time in some ways. So like 18 to now still, still feels one unfolding. And the time before that was, it was a very different time. Um, I will also say that, I mean, I review, I revised this book so many times. I have no idea how many times. Um, it could have been like 40. It could have been like 90. Um, but it's like something like that. Like it's like a big number. And so toward the end, especially, I was revising really fast. Like I was going through it over and over and over again. Um, I was doing things like recording myself, um, reading it out loud, and then listening to the recording, like looking for things that I'd missed. And so I was able to, especially toward the end, um, I felt that I could almost 
see it like as a unit and so I, I, I and so it it didn't feel very much as though it were it were it didn't feel fragmented if that makes sense it felt like a whole to me that I was playing with and working with there's a part in the book where Phoebe talks about discipline the seduction of discipline in her religious experience seems to intersect with the seductive nature of discipline in the arts I think mm. in a lot of ways and I, I just feel like that connects in some way to this 10-year process of just trying to to achieve this artwork I love that so much. Um, so, my, so my family was and is Catholic. Um, and then when I was in junior high and high school, I started going to a lot more of my friends' church services, and they belonged to a lot more like non-denominational, um, charismatic, ecstatic branches of Protestantism. Um, and so I, I experienced I experienced like these ver- these varieties of Christianity. Um, but something that really has stayed with me, I think, from Catholicism and something that 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 serves me and and helps me a lot with art is um the power of acting as if. And so in Catholicism, or in, at least in my experience of Catholicism, there's a lot less emphasis placed on how you feel about a certain thing, you know, like, like there's a lot less feel, emphasis placed on, oh, like right now I feel um, worshipful. Right now I feel I feel that I love God. And there's a lot more emphasis placed on going to mass, um, going, doing the prayers, going through the rosaries. Um, and there's something about the power of acting for me when I write. So if I sit down to write, if I can sit down as though I'm going to be able to get something out of it as though it's going to be a, a good writing day, um, even if it doesn't feel that way, even if that's the last thing I want to do, um, even if I would so much rather spend five hours around on Twitter. Um, I think that faith, that the action itself can lead to something um, has stayed with me with writing. Mm, that idea of being faithful to the process. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And for me, um, I know I know a lot of writers don't don't feel this way, but for me... I work best if I write every day. Um, if I take even like a day off, I can really feel it. Um, if, I t- if I take a day off, it takes like a few days for me to recover um, and get back to where I was. I've jokingly compared it to, it feels like having like a very jealous lover. Like if I if I ignore the book for one day, then it's just like, I don't want to talk to you. Like, I'm not like, what? What do you want from me? <laughs> and then I have to like coax it back. <laughs> How was reading important to you when you were a kid? Uh, and what kind of stories did you like to read or hear? Um, I was, you know, as, as, I, as I know a lot of writers were, I was a um, voracious and omnivorous reader. You know, like I would read anything that was put in front of me, um, including like, like, you know, like cereal boxes and shampoo bottles. <laughs> like I was just like, words, 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 like <laughs> give them all to me. Um, I loved even like the vocabulary flashcards that you, that you study for whatever, like the, like standardized tests. I loved all of it. <laughs> um, I, my first memories of just like really loving books though. Um, well, I also loved, I, I love some of the books that are more geared toward children, like like Christopher Pike, um, I was really into. He's he is a sort of kind of surreal horror writer. Um, he's like a much less tame version of like Arl Stein and or like Goosebumps kinds of books. Anyway, he was creepy as hell. He was great. <laughs> <laughs> but um, my first memory of really loving books and really falling in love with literature, um, it was a lot of. There were a lot of books around my house. So my mother was an English major. Um, 
in Korea, which is where she went to college. So there are a lot of books around my house by like Henry James, Edith Wharton, um, Dickens, um, Tolstoy, Dostoevsky, just like extremely dead white people. Um, and I think those are the books that really made me fall in love with with books and with and with rereading um, in particular. I, I I don't for a long time I'd have said Portrait of a Lady was my favorite book. Um, I'm not sure I would still say that, but it's still it's still way up there. And I don't know how many times I've reread that book, but I loved, and I still love the ways in which a really rich book will yield its riches on the hundredth reread, on the on the hundred and fiftieth reread. A passage I love will still be fascinating 160 reads later, and that's something that I find to be so fascinating about literature that 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 there's so much there. I almost feel as though on the first time, when I read a book for the first time, I don't really, I really don't feel as though I'm reading very much. Um, I get so anxious about like the characters and their fates. I'm like, well, is that person going to marry that person? Like what is going to happen to that character's father? Um, and I get very stressed out by that. And it's, and I, it's only by the second read that I can really start to slow down and really appreciate like the language and the structure and like the things that are happening behind the, behind the scenes. Did this experience falling in love with reading as a child, did this dovetail at all with, with your experience with Christianity at the time? Mm. It didn't at the time, but I think it did um, in some ways contribute to my loss of faith. Um, I think there was something about, and this wasn't the only reason I lost my faith, there was just a growing accumulation of questions um, and of pressures that could not be accommodated within the framework that I had of Christianity. But there was something about the fact that, you know, reading was my favorite thing to do. So I was spending so much time in the heads of people who did not believe what I believed. And I remember, like, in high school, I would just get so stressed out. Like, I would read, I don't know, I would read, like, Plato, and i get stressed out about, like, everyone's souls. And I, and I, I had, like, a very shaky grasp of theology, but I would, like, start, like, praying for these people because they hadn't known Jesus Christ. So, I, so like, possibly they were going to hell. And I was like, this makes no sense. They were alive before Jesus. Like, how does this even, like, what is, like, and, and so I, 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 I kept getting worried about the souls of people who did not believe what I believed. And increasingly, the more I spent time in other people's heads, it became difficult and then impossible to believe that all these, pe- all these people were condemned to hell because they didn't hold my beliefs about the world. I can't help but think about how powerful of a tool storytelling can be in the church and in other religious environments. Um, I was really young when I lost my Catholic faith. I was in probably eighth grade. Um, But I still remember being really wowed by some of the stories that you would hear during the Sunday service. Um, And so I guess I was wondering, did you ever learn or find inspiration from any of those storytelling techniques that you would experience while you had faith? This is an interesting question. Um, I don't think anyone's ever asked that before. I'm not sure that I would necessarily tie anything in particular back to the stories in the Bible or the stories that I heard um, about, like, Catholic saints. That said, I mean, because I was I was also, you know, like, I was also obsessed with, like, Greek myths. Like, there were a number of storytelling modes, I think, that were formative for me. There is, though, let's see, I haven't left with an appetite for ecstasy, an appetite for transcendence, you know. Um, I seek it out in a lot of ways, an appetite for joy, 
And that's something that I think I'm very interested in exploring in my in my writing as well. Um, and of course, that's there. There is transcendence aplenty in religious stories. Um, there's ecstasy aplenty in religious stories. And I, but I don't know which came before or after. You know, like, mm-hmm. like I don't know which came first. Was was I drawn to religion because? I was already like I already like really enjoyed the ecstatic or or am I still drawn to the ecstatic because I was so religious for so long there's mm-hmm. no way for me to tell because I because it's it was all I knew for so long Often I feel like the creative act can imbue meaning or purpose um, I feel like people find many ways to find meaning and purpose in their lives Do you think that writing gives purpose in uh, much the same way that religion can give purpose for people? Writing does give me a great deal of a sense of purpose. Um, So much so that, you know, if I go like a day or God forbid a week or even or any longer um, without writing fiction, I feel I, I, I feel that I am losing my sense of purpose. I can feel myself, I can actually sort of feel like parts of myself dying inside is what it feels like. Um, But I don't, I don't know that it has necessarily to do with, um, and I'm not, and I'm very, very not religious at this point, I think especially given my religious past, um, but there is something that I do love about the Buddhist notion of it's not the destination, it's, it's, it's the path getting there. And something that a lot of people told me and that I never believed until I experienced it for myself was that no external um, affirmation, no external praise and no external sort of achievement has ever begun to match, let alone exceed, the joy I have found um, when I'm in, when I'm writing and when I'm deep in a sentence and when I'm just really, really trying to get at what I'm, what, what it is I, I want to write down. Um, and most miraculously when I get there, when I write something down and I'm just like, yeah, like that gets at what I wanted to say right there. That's the purest and deepest joy I know. Um, and I feel so lucky to get to have that in my life. Um, and it isn't enough of a consolation, you know. If I could have stayed Christian, I would. If I could have stayed believing in this all-powerful God who made everything okay, I would have, but it wasn't possible for me. Um, but there are ways in which um, knowing that these joys that I have now through writing, through, you know, just through even just like hanging out with people I love, through all of that, through reading, knowing that those joys are finite, knowing that those joys will certainly come to an end because it always ends. Um, they, they have sharpened the, the amount of the joy that I get from it there because, because I know how ephemeral it is. And so there's that sense of, that sense of preciousness each time because I am not sure it's going to come back. Um, and I know at one, at one point it's going to come, it's all going to come to an end. And that and that um, that does bring me additional joy. Well, when you finished the novel, did you at least approach some sort of resolution towards your loss of faith? Um, I don't know that I found resolution. I think what I realized, what I'm still realizing, um, is that maybe sometimes grief doesn't end um, because sometimes love doesn't end. And grief, of course, is one way to look at grief is it's love for an object that has become unavailable for whatever reason. And um, and maybe that's something I am going to live with for the rest of my life. Um, and so we'll probably keep writing about. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think some of the, the best artists, they, they kind of 
oscillate around the same central idea their entire career, whether it's grief or something else. Yeah. And I, you know, so I've been working on my new novel. I keep calling it my new novel, but it's been three years. It's not new anymore. So I've been working on my second novel for <laughs> for almost three years. Um, and for the first two years, I tried really hard to keep out any mention of God or faith. Like I was just like, okay, like, look, dude, I spent like 10 years on you. <laughs> Let me move on. I have other things I think about. Um, but there was just something about the book that kept feeling like it didn't have the depth I wanted. It didn't. It wasn't really exploring some of um, the questions I wanted to explore. And finally, I was like, oh, no, I, I understand what's missing. It's that jerk. He's sliding back. <laughs> and the minute I let I let God sort of back into the book and back into the, this book I was working on, I was like, oh, OK, like it, it, I can see how it's like deepening things here. I can see it's like bringing things to life there. And like, yeah, so so he's in there, too. How have uh, religious people responded to the book? That's been um one of the loveliest surprises of having this book out in the world. Um, so I like low key was concerned, low key, but was ongoingly concerned about, I was like, oh, you know, like, I wonder if some like hard right religious group is going to ban this book and if there's going to be some sort of problem. But then like friends were also saying, you know, if someone like that banned your book, like it would actually help your book sales. Like you should actually kind of hope for that. And I was like, still, you know, like I don't want people out there like loathing me and my book based on the, um, based on ideas of what it might be about. Um, but almost entirely across the board. Um, so people, re- religious people, very religious people of all kinds who read the book um, have said they write to me or they come to readings and they tell me afterward that they really appreciate the ways in which the book takes faith very seriously. Um, The ways in which faith is not a punchline. Believers are not a punchline. Faith and belief are not a joke. Um, And I think that there isn't very much fiction that takes faith like this seriously, Um, especially not fiction that is... Like, yes, there's fiction that's intentionally geared toward believers of one faith or another. Um, Like, fiction like this that isn't geared toward a particular audience like that. Like, I I think that that's relatively rare. And so I've really enjoyed um, talking with believers of various kinds about about this book and about their faith. And, yeah. Is there a character that you most relate to in the story? Not really. I mean, I I, there's something my, my... mentor um, Michael Cunningham used to say in grad school, which was, uh, we must love our characters as God does and not more, which I love and think about a lot. And for me, um, at least, that means I love all my characters and, but I'm always following them. You know, like I'm asking them to tell me who they are. I'm asking them to tell me what they're going to do next. Um, I very much don't feel like a, like, like a puppeteer with strings. Um, I'm more just, I'm more, I'm more feel almost like a like a medium, I guess, but not really a medium. Anyway, I'm just like, I'm just like on the sides, like taking notes and like trying to learn about them. Um, but I will say, um, John Leal, the cult leader was relatively speaking, very easy for me to write. And, um, this always like stresses out my parents when I say this, (laughs) cause it was like, wait, stop identifying yourself with the, like, with the, like, scary as hell, um, cult leader. (laughs) But I think, you know, there's something about, about John Leal where, um, he is 
channeling perhaps the part of me that did want to become a pastor, you know, that, and and the ways in which he uses language to convince people. Um, I found that to be in some ways, in some ways, um, yeah, it was just like tapping into a, a part of myself that had gone just like totally dormant for a long time, I think. I feel like characters and stories are drawn in, in all different kinds of ways. I've heard people say that characters, all the characters in their stories are different f- fractions of their own being, or they come from people that they know, or they've just completely invented them. Do you feel like your characters have come from one of those places or another? I mean, I think there are ways in which they're all pieces of me, but they're all very much not me, too. Um, and so this will sound um, suspect, but it's almost what I believe. It's not quite what I believe because that doesn't it doesn't make any sense but when I'm writing I feel very much as though I'm working toward a book that pre-exists me I'm working toward an ideal shape and it's out there and I almost have to like dig my way toward it um and that's true of every character that's true of every line of the book it's true of every sentence and so I don't feel as though I'm like making I feel more as though I'm discovering um and I say I almost believe that because that doesn't I mean, like, the book doesn't pre-exist me. Like, I, I wrote it, so. But, <laughs> but I feel much more like a discoverer or like, a, or like I don't know, an explorer or something. The book feels like it's as much about class, culture, gender identity as it is about religious identity. How has your own identity uh, impacted your writing, and how did it influence some of the decisions you made with the incendiaries? I think I think about this a lot in terms of audience. Um, so, you know, like, a very common interview question is, who did you have in mind while you were writing? You know, like, who? what was the audience you had in mind while you were writing? And I used to, th- I used to think that my answer to this was, um, was like, super straightforward and, and, and boring, and that my answer was, when I'm writing, I'm just writing for myself because, I, because it's so incredibly absorbing that I, there's no space for me to think about anybody else. Like, there are no re- other readers in my head. Um, but then I realized that... That actually does have political implications because if I'm centering myself as a reader, um, that means I'm centering a Korean American woman who's an immigrant, who's queer, um, as a reader. And my body, bodies like mine, have not very often been centered in American letters as an audience. Um, and so that that played out in the book in, in various ways. Um, so... For instance, um, there's a there's a point early on in the book when Phoebe, who's Korean American, when her mother calls her Hejin, which is her middle name, but it's also her Korean name. Um, and at some point, someone asked a reader, asked like, "Hey, this is a little confusing. Like, do you want to clarify that? Do you want to like have like imp- I don't know like Hejin, like just like cl- clarify like this is her middle name, this is her Korean name, this is what her family calls her." And like, I just like very like instinctively was like, absolutely not, not like, why would I explain that? Um, any Korean American reader I can think of would immediately understand. Um, most Asian American readers I can think of would understand. Lots of readers would understand. And if anyone else who doesn't understand is briefly confused, that's okay. You know, like (laughs) the people who are going to be confused don't have to be centered. Um, and I just keep thinking about all the ways in which like, I have looked up so many sailing terms over the course of my reading life. Um, books by books by, books by by people who love to sail, waspy people who love to sail. And I love a lot of these books. Um, but I never, you know, like, I've, I've, like, been on a sailboat once. Like, I don't f- 
no sailing terms. Uh, I'm always like, what is a jib? Damn it. I'm going to go look it up again. <laughs> and like, that's fine. We can all look up things. Like Google is right there. Looking up words <laughs> is fun. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I feel like there's very few people that could read Moby Dick uh, with a pre- loaded amount of knowledge to really absorb everything in there. Exactly. The cetacean, <laughs> the depth of knowledge about whales. Like we all looked up words while reading that book and that's great. We're learning. <laughs> <laughs> so do you think the act of writing is political every time? I think there's no way for writing to not be political. Um, and I feel as though, I, t- I feel as though like in the U.S. in particular, there is there still seem to be people who believe that they, that their acts in life, and, and this like extends like way beyond art, like how you move through the world can be apolitical. And I just don't think that's possible. Um, I don't think it was ever possible. And I especially don't think it's possible right now when so many aspects of who people are and how they move through the world and how I move through the world are being politicized and are being attacked. Um, and of course, I think that extends to writing and art. Does your next novel dig as deep into a well of this personal history, or is it going into completely new places? Uh, so my next novel is um, it's centered on two women artists. Um, one is a photographer, one's a choreographer, and the photographer becomes professionally and then personally obsessed with the choreographer. Um, and so with this book, I'm very interested in exploring questions of what I, as a woman, have felt that I am allowed to want, and not only allowed to want, but often encouraged to want, and that often revolves around caretaking in, in various kinds. Like, like people, re- like, like I have people in my life who just like really want me to have a baby. Um, and I, and as it so happens, at least so far, I don't want babies. And I, I'm curious about the ways in which that is a laudable desire. Whereas when I've wanted things that don't involve caretaking. Um, when I want things that have to do with my art, with ambition, with, with the job, um, with my body, with sex, with um, with even just like having like, you know, I don't know, having a day to myself for no good reason except that I want a day to myself. The ways in which that feels more suspect, um, the way that the ways in which that feels so that has to be defended um, and or even hidden. And I'm just fascinated by that. And I'm and so with these two artists. They both are women who are very serious about their work and very serious about their art, and they want and want and want and want. And I want to see what happens when, 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 when want like that is on the page. What advice would you give to aspiring writers who are trying to, you know, tell personal stories? My friend um, Alice Sola Kim, who's a wonderful writer, she said something. I don't have it memorized. I'm going to paraphrase a little. But she says, she says something like, uh, write as though everyone you know is dead, everyone you love is dead, and you're dead too. <laughs> <laughs> I think um, if you're if you're writing something that feels really personal, if you're writing something that maybe because it feels so personal feels harder to put into the world, um, for me it helps a great deal too. Sometimes when I'm writing, actually lately almost every day while I'm writing, I just keep whispering to myself, like, it's okay. No one has to see this. No one has to see this. It's all right. This is just you. And that helps me a lot when, I, um, when I'm having trouble putting something down. That's great. Thanks so much for coming in. Thank you so much. This is delightful. Thank you. The American Masters podcast was created by Michael Cantor and is produced by Joe Skinner and co-produced by Josh Hamilton with sound engineering by Josh Broom, Evan Joseph, and John Berman. 
For American Masters, we thank series producer Julie Sachs and associate producer Christiana Lombardo. Our theme music is by Infinity Shred. We'd also like to thank the American Masters interns for their contributions to this episode, Christina Darko and Giovanna Drummond. Thanks for listening. And please don't forget to give us a rating or a review and tell a friend about us or share a favorite episode. See you in a couple weeks.